This is a podcast from Minute Media. Four and three and two and one. Let's go, guys. It is the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, part two, Beastie Boys, License to Ill. Today, we're going to go by track by track through License to Ill. Man, I thought I had something. I had nothing. I was just like... You were not rhyming and stealing right there. (laughs) (laughs) Alibaba and the 40 Thieves just took those thoughts right out of my head. Center stage on the mic, we've got our friend Def Dave back. Dave, how you doing tonight? I'm on the cool check-in. I'm hanging out with the gangster, the prankster, and the king of the app. <laughs> that is awesome. I got some Chef Boyardee cooling on the pot. I can drink a quart of monkey and still stand still. I'm ready to talk about License to Ill. Oh, nice. my gosh. Yes. He's strong. He's coming strong today. <laughs> so we're going to talk track by track about License to Ill. Just yeah. in case you're jumping in at this point, you may want to go back to last episode where we did kind of an overview of the Beastie Boys. We introduced Dave. We kind of talked about our relationship to the album and then kind of how the Beastie Boys got here. Okay, so this was the first rap album of all time to hit number one on the Billboard charts. I mean, it's it's groundbreaking. Yeah! Yep. I think it hit number one March 7th of 87. You know what it knocked out of the number one spot? Hysteria? Okay. Not hysteria. Huh. You're warm, though. You're close. Okay. Dave, you know what it knocked out of the number one spot? I think I do. Okay, what you got? It ended the seven-week reign of Slippery When Wet. Exactly right. Nice. It's exactly right. BMJ. And it was number one for seven weeks, and then it got knocked out by an album that we have podcasted on. You know what it knocked it out of the number one spot? 5150? No. I got nothing. Dave? Joshua Tree. The Joshua oh, Tree by you two. <laughs> let, let me tell you something about that. First of all, License to Ill matched Slippery When Wet with seven weeks in the top spot. But here's the thing. Slippery When Wet had the benefit of two number one hits. Joshua Tree had three number one hits. Uh-huh. And License to Ill had none. It uh-huh. had seven singles. Yep. And only one cracked the top 20. And that was Fight for Your Right to Party. And it peaked out at number seven. So I look day. at that the same it, day that the album went number, number seven, one. the same day that the album hit number one. Yeah. So what that tells me is radio was slow to catch up with what was happening with kids all across the country. We knew about the Beastie Boys and we were buying up the album, but radio had not caught up with this. And we see this album go to number one and stay there despite lack of airplay because there were no big hits that charted off of this album. Pretty remarkable. I I totally get it. But, you know, despite the lack of radio play, 
Fight for Your Right was on about every fourth song on MTV. You know it, what I mean? It was absurd how often they were playing the song. But it was a great video. Oh, we loved it. We loved it. Okay, so we'll get into we'll that. get to that, we'll get to that video when that comes in. Before we jump full on into the album, let's talk a little bit about the cover of the album. Yeah. All right. Okay. So it's it's iconic. You've got this American Airlines Boeing 727. You see the tail on the front cover of the album. And then when you open it up, you realize that the plane is crashing into the side of a mountain. Yep. And it kind of resembles like a joint being crushed out right, or something like right. that. The artwork was created by a guy named Stephen Byram and another guy named World B. Ohms. And World B. Ohms. World B. Ohms. Okay. And it's been it's been kind of imitated, like Eminem had an album where he imitated it. But one of the things that you showed me that I did not know about is the number on the side that if you hold it up to the mirror or just read it backwards, the threes become E's and it says, yeah, it's, it's me. three M-T-A-E. And if you turn that around backwards, it's eat me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Even the album cover is uh, making jokes. So, yeah. So Eminem kind of duplicated it on his album called Kamikaze. We would kind of be remiss if we didn't talk about what the album was originally going to be called. Okay. We can't say that. I know. (laughs) We are family friendly. We'll dance around it a little bit. I do think it's part of the story, how they sort of evolved from obnoxious teenage frat boy, crazy men to respected artists that we have later on today. So the album was originally titled Don't Be a F, F, right? Another name for a cigarette in England. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And Capitol Records said, no, we're not doing that. Right. Okay, so what does licensed ill mean? The, the word ill was simply the opposite of chill. So it was just a part of the lingo. If you were whack, right? If you were not cool, if uh, if you were doing something stupid, you were either ill or you were illin'. And there was a, <laughs> keep in mind, this is after the Raising Hell album has come out and there was a track on there called You Be Illin'. I think we're playing off the license to kill phrase and just went with the lingo. I've got a quick funny story on the title of the album, okay? So they were on the Joan Rivers show, okay? This is a while back, think back 35 years. Joan Rivers had her own talk show and she was introducing the Beastie Boys. And she's like, and here they are to promote their album, License to Kill. And you can hear these people off screen. They're like, it's it's ill. It's ill, Joan. She's like, I'm sorry, let me do it again. So they're here to do the record, License to Kill. They're like, Joan, no, it's ill. She's like, what? So they finally get her to say License to Ill. And she's like, that's a stupid title. (laughs) She said, you guys would have gone platinum in four weeks instead of seven weeks if you had a better title than License to Ill. But I just thought it was really funny. Joan Rivers thought it was a really <laughs> dumb title. So Out of touch. Yeah. Out of touch. <laughs> Out of touch. So this album, I cannot overstate how massive this album was. For me, my graduating class, we were in 10th grade at the time. It came out in 86. I discovered in early 87. This took over our school. We absolutely went nuts over this album and this group. It really defined that school year for all of us. Not only is it still the number one selling debut album in Def Jam history, it is the top selling debut album for Columbia Records. And it uh, proved to be a perennial seller, stayed in as a top seller in their catalog list. And even as of the 2000s, it was selling like 500,000 units a year. So it has continued to be uh, a massive hit. What high school did you go to? Uh, I was at Hardaway High School in Columbus. 
Give, give a shout out to the uh, the fighting uh, farmers or whatever they are. <laughs> shout out to the Hardaway Hawks, class of 89. Yes. Uh, my, crew, my crew, Cool Kid Chris, Clayboy E, MC <laughs> Chef, Bad, Goldie Rocks, the Boyd Wonder. So did you did you say that your mascot was the Hogs? Hawks. Hawks. Oh, okay. Hawks, like the Atlanta Hawks. Well, see, okay, so here's the here's the connection that Dave and I discovered whenever he started emailing us about this because I don't even remember what it was that spawned the original email where you said, hey, if you guys ever do Beastie Boys, Run DMC, I'm all in. But he pointed out that he was from Columbus, Georgia, which has a good story, which we'll tell later on. I was actually born in Columbus, Georgia. I didn't grow up there, but I was born there. Whoa. Then I moved to Arkansas where we were the hogs, not the hawks. <laughs> but um, it's just kind of crazy that there's a coincidental connection between Dave and I and that it should happen to circle itself around. Uh, wow. It was released in November of 86. Yep. By February 2nd, it was certified gold and platinum on the same day. By April, they had gone multi-platinum at 3 million units sold. And by 2015, it had been certified diamond, which means 10 million units sold of just this first album. I saw it in the Walmart $5 bin the other day. That's that's the CD I have in my car. And once again, I will promote, buy that CD, spend the five bucks. The sound quality is much better on the CD than it is on Spotify or YouTube or Apple Music or any of those things. There's something better about having a CD or record tangibly in your hand too. Much more personal connection, I think. Okay, Dave, you mentioned November of 86. It's actually November 15th of 86. We just crossed the 35th anniversary two days ago. Today, we're recording on November the 17th. Two days ago, this album turned 35 years old. Now, I just want to say this. We posted something on Facebook about this, and they grew up after this album. They've so much as said this was just kind of a goof album and that they were being goofy, and that's how the songs came about. And we'll get into all of that. But this album, and Dave is a testament to it right now, this album was a huge, momentous, life-changing thing for a whole lot of folks out there. When we did that post on Facebook, it lit up. Everybody loved this album when it came out. And I think it's that same kind of thing that happened, you know, about five years later with the with the grunge movement. It spoke to those people who on were they were ready for something new. They were ready for a rebellion. And these guys were obviously rebelling against the establishment. Okay. We ready to go? I'm ready. All right. We are diving in track by track. First one out of the gate is a song called Rhyming and Stealing. They're coming hard right out of the gate with the strong Led Zeppelin rock samples. I think they're doing a smart thing by catching the, the rock crowd right out of the gate. Absolutely. This this drum beat is one of the most unmistakable drum beats in drumming history. And they, they get a nice little record scratch right at the beginning that plays as a part of the rhythm. It's boom, 
boom, boom, boom, boom, and it's kicking butt right out of the gate. Monster start to the album. You just immediately, top down, turn it up. <laughs> now, I'm 15 years old in 1987. I had never heard Led Zeppelin, never heard When the Levy Breaks. This was new to me. I was yeah. offended later when I found out that Led Zeppelin had stolen from the <laughs> Hot start to the album. The verses and everything, they're written in a way to kind of frame the Beastie Boys as pirates. I love the song. It's a it's a home run right out of the gate. The idea, for me at least, the rhyming and stealing, I mean, they're stealing hooks and stealing beats and stealing bits of songs and then setting their own rhymes to it. I mean, just the samples on this song alone, you've got When the Levee Breaks by Led Zeppelin, you've got Sweet Leaf by Black Sabbath, and then you also have I Fought the Law by The Clash. Let's just think about this just for a second. So they're referring to Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. That's unquestionable, right? They repeat that one. They start off by talking about mutiny on the bounty and captain bly they're also talking about pieces of eight and these are all like literary references but they've obviously got this rap beat they talking about being an ill b-boy and already talking about brass monkey so we party we are intelligent we rock and we also hip-hop it's like here's all of us all right out here in front and we're a little smart too okay yeah i love the references what strikes me and this is going to be true throughout the album is that even though it's easy to kind of look at them as as almost a a comedy approach or a parody of hip-hop they're bringing the goods they are bringing the goods that every track is awesome and they've got the quality they got the skills they got the production and the and the rhymes it's just uh i'm I'm a big fan it's awesome i'm with you i can tell the bridge where they say alibaba and the 40 thieves about 20 times can't hardly miss that reference you know the other stuff kind of flies under the radar you guys watch the 30 for 30 on espn yeah i caught one the other day i was a big 1986 new york mets fan and so i watched that 30 for 30 and they were using ryman and stealing as (laughs) putting it to the highlight videos for that year so that was pretty cool this is one of the few tracks on the album that was not released as a single but it is one of my favorite this one should have been a single so when they went on the license to ill tour you know they only had this one album so they didn't have a large repertoire to pull from they basically performed this entire album there was only one track off that they did not do they started with rhyming and stealing i remember it very clearly their opening act was fishbone they were a hardcore punk band but when the BC Boys came on, those lights came on and flooded the crowd. And then the when the levee breaks, drum beat comes in. They come stomping out on the stage. The place went absolutely nuts. Awesome. So with the drum beat for Rhyming and Stealing, Ad Rock and Mike D went over to MCA's house and he had set up the loop. Had it strung all across his house where he had looped manually the drum beat for when the levee breaks. Today we would do that on a computer and it'd be no problem. This was a, a ton of effort, but it sounded fantastic today on garage band there's a button there's a loop button and it'll give you a whole list of loops that you can use but back in 1986 it was a new thing it was something not many other folks were doing it so even though these guys are goofy even though they're hip-hop he is still bringing some smarts and some savvy to even the music that they're producing all right that brings us to song number two on the album this song is called the new style and on the cool check-in center stage on the mic 
and we're putting it on wax. It's the new style. Four and three and two and one. What up? And when I'm on the mic, the suckers run. Word. Just a great song right off the bat. Yep. This was released so, as the third single, uh, released November 6th of 86. Yeah, so this one he actually, they've sampled some other things. What have you got on samples on this one, Jason? Okay, so this song samples Drop the Bomb by Trouble Funk. Yeah. Peter Piper by Run DMC. Yep. Cool is Back by Funk Inc. Uh-huh. 2-3 Break by the B-Boys. Yep. Flick of the Switch by ACDC. That's it. The, the song is great. I love the song. I'm down with MCA, Mike D, and you ain't. I got more juice than Picasso's got paint. It is the third single from the album. So the part where it breaks down and he says, let me clear my throat. That was an inside joke. So last week I explained that LO Cool J had been making home demos and sending them to record labels. And it was the one that was sent to Def Jam that Adam Horowitz found and gave it to Rick Rubin. Right. Well, as it turns out at the beginning of that tape, the demo before I need to beat starts, you hear LL say on tape, let me clear my throat. Well, for whatever reason, the Beastie Boys thought that was hilarious. <laughs> they got a big kick out of that. So that is the reference that's in A New Style when he says, let me clear my throat. That was an inside joke for them because it came off of LL's original demo that he had sent in. This one hit the U.S. Hot Black Singles, reached number 22. Okay, so I'm going to throw this out there. It says, part of the lyrics say, because I'm October 31st, that's my date of birth. I got the party and you know what I did? The Smurf. Now I'll say... Ad Rock was born on October 31st. It is actually his birthday, October 31st, in addition, obviously, to being Halloween. But what's the Smurf? It must be a dance. He does the Smurf, the Popeye, and the Jerry Lewis. He likes Bullwinkle, but he doesn't like Brutus. <laughs> Love it. I feel like we've got like the fourth Beastie Boy with us today. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to track number three. This song is called... She's crafty. say the 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 lyric that always jumps out at me at this one is the cab driver recognized the girl from the back of it, her head <laughs> so wildly inappropriate so wildly inappropriate oh my gosh the one that jumps out to me is her name is lucy but they call her loose <laughs> what do you think about this one dave i like it it's catchy i wouldn't put it in the top tier of the songs on the album but uh, I never skip it. That Led Zeppelin sample drives it. Again, I was ignorant of Led Zeppelin when I was experiencing this album new. It's kind of cliche for rap at the time, but I loved it. I absolutely loved what they did in this era, which is basically brag about themselves. A lot of these tracks on here come down. The subject matter is just talking about how great they are. She's Crafty is an exception. She's Crafty actually tells a bit of a story. There's a couple on here that tell stories, and She's Crafty is one of them. So it's a little bit of a, of a change up as far as that goes. What they're doing is they're switching between lines they're switching off parts I, 
And it's something that Run DMC had kind of made their trademark. That was just with two MCs. And Beastie Boys are taking the next level with three. All I can say, it's catchy. It's funny. I think it's a funny story. He wakes up naked in the middle of the floor and he's taking the bed in the chest of drawers. This one is from Led Zeppelin, The Ocean, which is on Houses of the Holy. It's unmistakable Zeppelin. Like I know you, not all of us were familiar with it at the time, but there's no question what it is when you hear it. Rap developed out of a club scene and a, a breakbeat culture, which they were cutting between records and playing different records and cutting between them. And that developed as rap did into this sample-based uh, approach to the music. And we, we were getting sampling in other tracks already before now, but what Rick Rubin did was he just kind of brought it out to the fore. Instead of making it a fill or a little uh, extra gag in the song, he, he built the whole song around these samples. He's coming to the table with a love for hip hop and a love for rap, but fully educated on rock and roll. And he's able to take what he had already done for Run DMC and take it to the next level with this album. So he's just, uh, I guess they got clearance on uh, on these Led Zeppelin songs and all the samples that are throughout the album. I read an article with Jimmy Page. They're asking him about it. And he's like, well, we didn't really give permission. And he goes, I briefly thought about doing something legally about it. He's like, but in the end, I was flattered by it. So I just let it go. The whole issue, the legal issue surrounding sampling was forced by the Beastie Boys' second album, which was not produced by Ruben. It was Paul's Boutique in 1989. And that is a masterpiece of production and technique, and it's just nothing but samples. But it's also an album that could, that's no longer possible today because the, the rules and the laws have changed, and it would be too expensive at this point to ever do again. With this album and with Paul's Boutique, really kind of shaped copyright law and shaped entertainment law when it comes to sampling. I got to say, I know that you're the, this isn't as a big a hit for you, but it was at this point in the listening that I started dancing in my seat. Like, as I'm going through the album, I'm like, this is a good song. Next song, this is a good song. By song number three, I'm starting to dance in my seat as I'm driving to work in the morning. You can't help but just enjoy yourself. They just make it a fun vibe to the whole thing. All right. Now then, we are now on to the next song called Posse in Effect. Yes, yes, y'all, and you don't stop, keep it on, stock in the place, see, I got nothing to prove, pay attention, my intention is to boss the move, and cans, and bottles, and sexes, between the turntables, keep the and you don't stop, <laughs> I, did they sample that? They sampled that later on, that's in another song, isn't it? That's, that's I Wanna Sex You Up by Color Me Bad. <laughs> <laughs> right? Are you serious? Let's check it real quick. Oh my gosh. The and you don't stop. He's saying is in color me bad. I want to sex you up. I gotta hear this. No? It's not it's it's very well could be them. I don't know. No, that that sounds like uh Slit Rick and Lottie Dottie. Slit Rick and Dougie Fresh teamed up to do a song called Lottie Dottie. To the TikTok, you don't stop. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Lottie, Dottie, we like to potty. We don't cause trouble. We don't bother nobody. We're just some guys that's on the mic. And when we rock up on the mic, we rock the mic. What? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yes. I, I can it. keep going. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Posse in Effect has three songs that it sampled. Catch a Groove by Juice, Change the Beat by B-Side, and Pee Wee's Dance. Yes. By Joski Love. Yeah. I remember Joski Love. Yep. Pee Wee's Dance, as in Pee Wee Herman. 
Yes, they, he took the the da na da na da na da 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 from Joski Love. You know that was oh. Pee Wee Herman's little dance routine, and Joski was this guy. His one hit wonder, as far as I know, but he had a rap about Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> that is awesome. We need to play a clip yeah, of that right here. And that's from Tequila, I guess. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say that the, that may be what Pee Wee Herman was, whatever was in that song, but that was originally from Tequila. Okay. Which is what, of course, he does the dance to on top of the bar, right? In the movie. Uh, yes. Yeah. In Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. When, when Mike D says, I travel around the globe, I'm keeping girlies dizzy. My name's Mike D. Now watch me. And then they sample Joski Love when he says, get busy, y'all. That's Joski Love. Okay. Nice. Okay, cool. Nice. This one's really short. It's like two and a half minutes worth of song here. Isn't this the one that says, I got a girl in the castle and one in the pagoda? You know, I got rhymes like Abe Pagoda. (laughs) (laughs) Any song that uh, makes reference to Abe Pagoda, top notch in my books right there. There is redeeming value in this album because I was educational for me. I learned what a pagoda was. (laughs) Did you know who Abe Pagoda was when you... Yeah. My dad was a Barney Miller fan. So Barney Miller, that's right. <laughs> Miller, oh my gosh. He was uh, also he was, in The Godfather. Yeah, I was going to say, he was in The Godfather, and didn't he Didn't he play like Boris Karloff in a movie as well? I don't know, but he definitely could. I do know this. There is a Beastie Boys tribute band. I looked him up on Facebook. They are called My Posse in Effect. Give them a listen, give them a look-see, see what you think. What I like about rap, is, and when I say I like rap, I, I quit liking rap at the end of the 80s, but the part that appeals to me <laughs> the part that appeals to me is the cleverness of the lyrics and the cleverness of the rhymes. Uh-huh. And a lot of times, you know, when you're talking about this album, it's, you don't have much more to say other than I like the beat, and then you start quoting lyrics. Yes. Um, you know, if it makes you smile, if it makes you laugh, then then it's memorable. Posse in Effect and the next one, Slow Ride, to me, are, are among my favorite. They were not released as singles, but to me, they're almost the purest uh, rap songs on the album. I wear a hat, not a visor. I drink Budweiser, the turntables up on the drum riser. Yes, sir. The on the groove and the primals on the platter. You know that I'm flying and there's no need to flatter. Yeah. <laughs> the rhymes keep coming and they don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> The drums at the very beginning of this, the little sample right there, uh, that sounds like the drum machine that they probably paid for with their 40 grand that they got from British Airways. I think the 40 grand went to buy their house, but I, I think that, I think Rick Rubin had the drum machine. That was, that was really the selling point for bringing him into the band. All right, moving on to the next song. This one's called Slow Ride. Yeah. Super catchy. It's Super making catchy. great use of that, the Lowrider song right there. They sample that hard. There's Lowrider. Okay. And then there's Slow Ride, which was a Foghat song too. Yes. But they've, they've kind of borrowed, I mean, because it was the same era as the Lowrider song, but that the drum beat, you know what it's from? Tell me. I'm asking you. I'm, I want you to I, tell me. I think it is called Change the Beat by Beside, but I'm not sure. I'll tell you one thing that I know about these guys. These dudes love 
love White Castle. <laughs> it is unmistakable. I think they mention it in about every other song. Something about White Castle. So what I'll mention here is that I think part of the appeal of this group, you know, the whole world's discovering this group with this album. And so not only do you have the three MCs, but each of their voices are very distinct. Yeah. Especially when you contrast King Ad Rock's wine with MCA's gruffness, it just adds to the fun. But what it also does is it makes them unique. And I think this is the reason why the BC Boys, despite being white and despite being these like uh, party hardy frat boy types and with all these raunchy lyrics or whatever and all this rock and roll in it, the reason they were so accepted by rap fans and by the hip hop community, both professionals and by the fans is that they were true to themselves they didn't try to sound like anybody else you could tell that they were coming at this with a true love for hip-hop and they weren't making fun of anybody and they weren't treating it like a joke they weren't treating the the form like a joke right even though there was humor in their content but again just those the contrast of those voices i think it really carries both posse and effect and slow ride yep i'm totally with you you know we started off with some rock heavy some guitar based songs but these last couple uh, we get away from that you know there's some horns and there's a beat but it's not really this driving guitar sound like we like we started the album off with. So they've kind of switched gears a little bit on us. And again, we stay away from the guitars mostly in uh, in this next song. Yeah, I think they switched gears again right here. And I just got to say for like songs for song three and for song four and for song five, I'm dancing through all of it. But then we get to song six and not only only am I dancing, but I'm smiling. like a nursery rhyme song you've got a nursery rhyme song except it is ad rock talking about having the hots for a girl that used to be interested in mca and so mca wasn't interested in her and so he's like yeah go ahead have at it girls i totally agree with you though this sounds like a little xylophone that you have in the in your church <laughs> nursery you know it's catchy it's different it's, it's- so inappropriate. <laughs> oh, so inappropriate. For a guy who's got two daughters, I'd be like, what? What? You shut up. You shut your mouth. But back when yep. I was, you know, back when I was 13, it was awesome. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, when I was 15, you know, I thought this was hilarious. I, I listen to it now and I'm like, yikes. You know, it's uh completely objectifying. You know, talking about and it's chill to hear them talk as if they're not real humans or something. <laughs> but uh, and then you, you have them doing your dishes and and you know and doing your laundry and stuff like that, which you know, in, in 10th grade, you know, we think we think this is hilarious and we're and we're quoting this song in the hallways just to kind of get at the girls in school just to give them a hard time you know it is a song that tells a story and it's a song that instead of bragging about himself it's a song of failure he, he ends up not getting the girl but it's one of those that they are embarrassed about and when i did catch the license to ill tour in february of 87 they played all but one track off the album for their set yeah this was the track that they did not play i show this as the only song they've never performed live I have no reason to argue with that. So So just on the topic of whether they're feeling bad about the subject matter of the song, did they still have a stripper dancing inside of a cage (laughs) on the stage? (laughs) I didn't feel that bad. (laughs) 
Yes. They had girls in cages dancing and their in their DJ setup looked like a giant six pack of Budweiser. I heard them talk about this and they thought it was a joke. Russell Simmons introduced a guy and said, here, tell him what you want for your stage show and he'll get it for you. And they're like, all right, we want a giant six pack of Budweiser. We want a stripper in a cage and we want a humongous <laughs> dick in a box. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, all right, no problem. And sure enough, they showed up and the guy had gotten it all. <laughs> I got to tell you a personal story about this song. There was a girl I was dating at the time and it was after school was out. But we were all in the hallways. And uh, one of the guys came up to me and asked me where she was. And I didn't know, but I thought I was hilarious. And I just sat there and I just said, She's jocking Mike D to my dismay. Which was bad because I turned around, she was actually right there and she heard it. <laughs> and of course, we're, we all love this album. So we get a big laugh. She gets, you know, I, I didn't know she was there. She's kind of sneak. She, she was, uh, uh, she was crafty, right? She was, uh, she was kind of hot around the corner. <laughs> and uh, that was, uh, that was pretty much the end of us. She she did not appreciate the laugh at her expense. <laughs> but 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 you know if, if you ask her, she'll probably tell you that that I'm cheaper than a hot dog with no mustard. So I guess it worked out. <laughs> That's great. Hey, you know the fascinating thing about this song is the way they wrote it and what they were trying to model it after. So these guys were sitting around with Rick Rubin one day. They were on the bus, and he's like, "I've got a great idea." Why don't you model a song after Shout by the Isley Brothers? You know you make me wanna shout, kick my heels up and shout, throw my hands up and shout, throw my hands up. Oh yeah, I can totally hear that. Oh yeah, okay. for sure. This now. song is modeled after Shout. I like the way that they walk. And it's chilly in a dark. And I can That's pretty cool. That That's pretty mind. cool, yeah. Blows my mind. You got it. That one, that one, you went on the blowing mind. Yes. Sure for that one. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, hang on. Just one more thing. Okay. Because uh, Dave, you sent this to me this week. I thought this was really cool. The Goldie Blocks Toy Company mm -hmm. in 2013 did a commercial where they took this song and they changed the lyrics to be like girl positive about girls who didn't want to be princesses and dress in pink and instead they want to be engineers and be smart and they have all these yep. super cool toys. Specifically, it was specifically to promote girls to go into STEM academics, uh -huh. and the entire commercial was a giant, uh, like Rube Goldberg device, and was it was directed yes. by the same guy who directed OK Go video that does the same thing. I love the OK Go videos; they're amazing. Yeah, but they sued them, but they sued them. That's so right. Here's the problem with that: Adam Yawk, MCA, died of cancer in 2012, right? And he right. had made it his express wish in his last will that BC Boys music never be used in commercials. Right. And so Ad-Rock and Mike D were in a position of having to ask Goldie Blocks, like, what are you doing? Like, you didn't ask us about this. They didn't need permission because they had changed it up. It was, it was protected as a parody. Right. Goldie Blocks immediately sued the BC Boys somehow for some reason. But right. the BC Boys are looking like they're against promoting stem for girls but what they're really trying to do was was to look out for mca's 
final wish. And so it was a bad PR hit for both sides. And it was just kind of an awkward thing where this was this was a positive use of their music, but it still went against what, what Adam Yaw said he wanted. So yeah. they came to an agreement. They settled, I think it was like a million bucks or something. Goldie Blocks agreed to quit using the song. They kept the commercial, but just used different music. And they paid $1 million, but it did not go to the surviving Beastie Boys. It went to a charity of their choice that promotes STEM education for girls. So it was kind of a win-win all the way around, but they were able to get their music removed from the commercial. So everybody was happy. Okay. Are we ready? The song that changed everything. Yeah! This is the tentpole. Okay, so I said now, you know, at, at song number three, I start dancing as I'm driving in my chair. I'm dancing up until I get to song six. At song six, I'm smiling and dancing. And then when song number seven starts, I start banging my head. We're getting kind of a, an awesome stretch right here. Oh, yeah, for sure. This was released as the fourth single in December of 1986. And as we said before... This was on about every fourth song on MTV. This video was fantastic. The song was super catchy. It got to number seven on the Hot 100. It was one of the last songs to find its way onto the album because, and I don't know how many times we've said this, Rick Rubin comes to him and says, we need just one more song. (laughs) And we're running on a deadline, so you got to get it in. We need like two hours. Yeah. And so this is what they come up with. There's a uh, they talk about a song from Brooklyn, like the band Brooklyn, not the town Brooklyn, that this song is based on this idea of you got to fight for your right to party, but they've definitely got their own lyrics to it. And it's a goof song again, but they're making fun of frat guys and party bros. And then when they make the video, they play the part of frat guy and party bro and then when they go do their stage shows they become those guys and pretty soon it's their entire image this is what i thought they were for sure i thought this was a genuine like this is who these guys are yeah yeah it's a hit of adrenaline when this song hits right because plastic effects slow riding girls we haven't had that driving guitar yet and it's catchy and you're dancing along, but then it just opens with that power chord. Boom. You gotta fight for your right to party. Kick it. I mean, all of a sudden you wait back up. It's a punch in the face right in the middle of this album and it rocks. 
And yes, it took over MTV. You saw it in uh, almost every segment. And it was one you could jump around to, bang your head. It was easy to sing along with. It was the tent pole of this album. It was the highest charting hit they had off this album. This, yeah, this defined their image and this defined their sound. And it, um, it was everywhere. This is where I enter the scene. So even though it's the fourth single off License to Ill, I had not heard anything prior to this. I mean, mainly because I was just, whatever was on MTV, that was my intake. The video for me is as much a part of my nostalgia for this song as the song itself. The song is fantastic and hilarious and headbanging and all that stuff. But the video to me is equally as impactful and fun and funny. Do you like parties? Yeah. We can invite all our friends and have soda and pie. Yeah. Yeah. So the video was directed by Rick Manello and Adam Dubin, right? Yes. So these guys were roommates at NYU where Rick Rubin was like the floor administrator guy. What are they called? The RA. The RA. Yeah, he was the RA. And he, when they decide they're going to do a video, he goes to, I believe it was Rick Manello and says, hey, you're into all of these old movies. I want you to make this video for me. And Rick is like, no way. If this video is a flop, I'm going to be the one that gets blamed. And so then they go to Adam Dubin, his roommate, who is a film studies guy. And they said, hey, will you co-direct and that way, nobody can blame it on either of you. It's just, <laughs> and so these two guys co-directed this video literally in the dorm rooms at NYU. The guys, one of them, their mom is the one who gets the pie in the face yes. at the end. Yes. And they've got they've got Flea, they've got Mutt Lang, they've got Tabitha Soren, they've got LL Cool J, all of these folks who are not somebody yet, but who are in this video walking through the door and partying along. And they've got they've got Rick Rubin coming in. Rick as well. Rubin, yeah, wearing a Slayer t-shirt. Right. Which of course is ironic because we've got a song coming up that's got a Slayer lead in it. Yep. And Slayer was actually a band that he was also producing the records for at the time. Yeah. So you had members of the young and the useless were also in this video. Yeah. And I know that you're teasing Kerry King there, but we got to say this. He played on this song, too. The solo on this song is Kerry King. Really? OK, I did oh, not nice. know that. OK, yeah, okay nice. Good. Let's talk about Tabitha Soren for a second. This is before she was an MTV personality. She what was just about? a NYU student who happened to be friends with Rick Rubin. I think she's actually blonde in the video. She said she was doing everything she could not to get a pie in the face <laughs> because they didn't have any money to make this video. So they went and got the whipped cream for the pies out of like an old restaurant trash can. So it was like rancid whipped cream. And she said it smelled like throw up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw the storyboards for this and the funny part about the storyboards were they were just barely even sketches i mean you're talking like childlike faces Six figures. but they were storyboarded exactly like you see the video that's nice well he was a film student he's I mean, an nyu film student of course he's in storyboards storyboards the video <laughs> the guy getting spit on in the face and you know Spiking the, the punch, burning stuff, you know, kissing the girl and all that stuff. This was a teenage boy's dream. <laughs> Burn stuff, kiss girls, party while your parents are out of town. I mean, I was 14 when this came out. That's all I wanted to do. Hey! 
I got to tell you this. This is the time for this story. So this song was, of course, the biggest hit they had on the album, and it was climbing its way up the charts. And it would soon peak at number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 at number seven. It would peak there on March 7th. Just one week before that, they played a show February 28th, 1987, in Columbus, Georgia. And I was yes. there with pretty much my entire 10th grade class on the floor, close to the stage, packed in, absolutely living the dream, soaking in this entire performance. We It was a time of our lives. It's a touchstone experience for our whole high school years that we still talk about today. Fight for Your Right was their big hit. It was their big finale. They finished the show with Fight for Your Right to Party. Uh, before the night was over, they were on the news. Before the the week was over, city council had met to discuss the Beastie Boys. Um, so what you had was a case of a bunch of families thinking that it would be safe to take their kids to see some white rappers. But what they got were some obnoxious punk rockers from New York City who wanted to offend everybody in the house. You could say they had a, another member on stage who <laughs> unveiled himself at the end of the show. This is where they had the stage prop that's so notorious for this tour. It was, I can tell you, it's true. I saw it myself. A 20-foot replica of an erection that came out of some box in the back of the stage. It inflated up and it towered over the crowd and waved back and forth. It was in embarrassing detail. And we were all standing there in shock. We cannot believe what we saw. And the Beastie, I just remember the Beastie Boys on stage looking up at it and busting out, cracking up, laughing like they'd never seen it before. <laughs> this did not go over well. Um, there were a lot of people clutching pearls in the audience that night who said that there's no way this should be allowed. So there were minors in the audience that they had this prop waving over everybody at the end of the show. They had scantily clad women in cages throughout the whole thing. They had girls in the audience that were lifting their shirts because the because the Beastie Boys were telling them to. It was highly offensive. It did not fly in Columbus, Georgia. But as it turns out, they could not find where they had broken any laws. They had not done anything illegal. And the leadership and the public said, well, that's not right. So the very next city council meeting, they passed a new ordinance, the Ludinus Ordinance, that said basically that they nobody could do this again. And so the Beast Boys got away scot-free. But now in their wake, this lewdness ordinance uh, now existed on the books in Columbus. I was also there in June of 1987 when LL Cool J was headlining. And during the song, I Need Love, he got really friendly with a couch that they had brought out on stage. And he was arrested under this law after the show. Todd from Queens was rubbing on a couch? Yes, yes. <laughs> Make love to the couch kitchens. Yeah. Who hasn't done that? <laughs> so this is uh, this is something that L. O. Cool J went on Arsenio Hall at the time to talk about. He still talks about it on his talk show appearances today. So I've seen on the internet a clip where in recent years he was on Jimmy oh. Kimmel. Yeah, talking about this same incident. So it's not something LL has ever forgotten. He was arrested a year later. Bobby Brown was arrested, and then a year after that, Gene Simmons was arrested because he apparently mooned at the audience. And after that, they quit enforcing the law. So so L.O. Cool J and 
Bobby Brown and Gene Simmons have the Beastie Boys to thank for their uh, for their <laughs> arrest record in Columbus, Georgia. Gene Simmons' bare butt made them cow down and just say, this is not worth it anymore. Have you guys seen Fight for Your Right Revisited? You sent me the clip. I've caught a little bit of it, but just I know who's in it and what kind of the actions are, and I got to watch the whole thing. I'm excited to see it. Dave, have you seen this? No. It's a 30-minute video where they Adam Yock directed this, right? But he asked Seth Rogen, Elijah Wood, and Danny McBride to come up with what happened after the Fight for Your Right party. So they leave the party. You see them leave the room where they have the pie fight, and they come downstairs, and they run into people who are asking them. It's Susan Sarandon. Yeah. Who's asking them, what are you guys up to? You guys are troublemakers. It's Seth Rogen, Elijah Wood, and Danny McBride all wearing the same attire that the Beast Boys wore in the Fight for Your Right video. They run into Will Ferrell, John C. Riley, Jack Black, who are dressed in the same attire. So it's like you have Beastie Boys against Beastie Boys. Beastie Boys from the future. From the future. In a DeLorean, right? Yeah, there is a DeLorean. All right. And so they have this weird dance off and then the cops show up and it's the real Beastie Boys as the cops. <laughs> the video is great. It's really funny. I sent it to you. You didn't watch it. I'm sorry. But it's uh, <laughs> definitely worth a look. Okay. Are we done That's with cool. Fight for Your Right? Done for Fight for Your Right and we're done with side one. Flip it over. Time to hit stop on your tape player. Kick it out. Flip it over. Side two. Okay, Jason, let's take a quick break while we do a Shirley showcase. We have a special one for today. Yeah, this is our friend Christopher Weber. He's been interacting with us for a long time on social media. Yeah, he decided to weigh in on our Police Synchronicity versus Journey Frontiers album. Let's see what he has to say. Hey, Jason and D. This is Chris Weber down in New Orleans, and I appreciate the opportunity to give my final judgment on a previous matchup. The episode that I chose pitted the police's synchronicity album versus journey's frontier albums i have to admit when i first heard the matchup i thought it was going to be a landslide but after listening to the episode i think both of y'all brought some really good points that made me think about both of these two albums prior to these two albums being released I was a somewhat casual police fan i had heard every little thing she does is magic on the radio and I was probably somewhat familiar with Roxanne due to 48 hours. But for the most part, I was listening to Journey Escape in the years before this. So I was very familiar with Journey. I had that album and I listened to it front to back. When Synchronicity came out with the advent of MTV, suddenly I was hearing the songs on the radio. I was seeing the videos on MTV. I was starting to drive, so I was buying cassettes to listen into my car. Journey Frontiers, I was familiar with the singles that were played on MTV. We'll get to the video in a minute. But really, I did not own this album. However, picking the album up and looking at the first five songs on the first side, it's pretty hard to argue that it did have a lot of radio hits. However, Looking at side two of Frontiers, I feel like the album just drops off. Whereas Synchronicity, I played that cassette tape over and over and over in my car. I'm, yes, Mother is on it, and that, we will say, is an acquired taste. But if you say side two of Synchronicity is the matchup between side one of Frontiers, I think side one of Synchronicity with Synchronicity one and Synchronicity two 
are stronger than anything that's on side two of Frontiers. I agree the matchup would have been even closer had Journey decided not to take off two songs and save them for soundtracks. Both songs that were taken off were later featured on their greatest hits. So Ask the Lonely, which was in the Twist of Fate movie, perhaps a throwaway soundtrack there, still could have bolstered side two of Frontiers. But certainly only The Young, which was the leadoff track on Vision Quest, which is just a fantastic soundtrack. One of my two underrated soundtracks of the 80s. Certainly it had Only The Young, it had two songs by Madonna, it had Don Henley, it had a breakout song with Lunatic Fringe with Red Rider, and it featured much maligned singer by Jason, John Waite, doing his cover of Change. Change is a spider song written by Holly Knight, who also wrote Better Be Good To Me, which was covered Tina Turner, who also did a cover of John Waite's Missing You. I believe Jason took issue with John Waite and his criticism of Open Arms, which was a song that was in, though not featured in a movie, whose soundtrack I also think is a hidden 80s gem, that being The Last American Virgin. This soundtrack features Tommy Two-Tone, The Police, Oingo Boingo, The Cars, The Gleaming Spires, and U2. If you haven't heard this album, go check it out. It's pretty good. Now, this gets us to the video for Separate Ways, Worlds Apart. Yes, some of those early MTV videos were pretty bad. And this one, I will admit, is comical but I do have a particular affinity for it as it was filmed in New Orleans. And in fact, it's just a little bit down from where I'm currently working. I suppose my best defense for it is the 80s were the decade where we were all playing air guitars and air drums and perhaps even air synthesizers or keyboards. So when that song first starts off, who amongst us is not playing the opening keyboard solo? In addition to that, I think this song features a couple of wonderful drum fills that rank up there with In the Air Tonight and Tom Sawyer. So laugh at it if you must, but I do have a soft spot for that video. Which brings me to my final judgment. I have to go with my initial reaction, The Police. I'm just more familiar with that album. All of those songs I know from beginning to end, and I just think from the beginning of the album to the end of the album, it's a much stronger album than Journey's Frontiers. Guys, keep up the great work. I've enjoyed the show since the beginning and look forward to more episodes. Okay, another vote for synchronicity right there. Yeah, and this was uh, the great part about this episode was that you were confident that you were going to be picking Frontiers on this one. And then after we dived into them, you swap sides you came to the right side <laughs> yeah i did i switched sides after diving in i, I surprised even myself yeah poor john wait <laughs> <laughs> listen <laughs> I, I know that uh chris is coming to his defense here but john wait made the biggest wiener love song of the <laughs> and for him to dog jonathan kane is just so funny to me but the cool thing chris weber sent us pictures of the wharf down in new orleans where 
they actually filmed the separate ways video. So that was really cool, Chris. Thank you so much. They airplayed the instruments. Yep. Thanks, Chris. We really (laughs) appreciate it. We had a a great time listening to your showcase, man. Man, thanks for interacting with us and appreciate you listening. All right, let's get back to side two of License to Ill. No sleep till! Let's yeah. go, man. Yeah, bring the hard rock coming, man. That is awesome. So the music on this one, the guitar riff, is it a sample? It sounds so much like something. Is it? Is, is it I Love Rock and Roll? I've got a, it's got a strong I Love Rock and Roll vibe to it. I, we get the uh, we get a sampling of Joan Jett here in a minute, but I don't think it's on this one. All right. Well, it's just dang good guitar then. Well, the title is a reference to No Sleep Till Hammersmith by Motorhead. But yes. I'm not familiar with that song. And you're telling us that Kerry King from Slayer actually plays the guitar on this one, as well as yeah. Fight for Your Right. Yes, he plays on both. Well, I'll just give you my reaction to the song. Go ahead. I mean, Good. boom, you come right off of Fight for Your Right, boom, you hit this, you got the boom, boom, pow. The, the beat, you cannot listen to this song and stay still. So 1986 was a busy year for Rick Rubin. He not only produced Raising Hell and License to Ill, but he also produced the album for Slayer. He was working with Slayer at the same time. And so he he brought Kerry King over to play the guitar solo on this song. He's more known for some reason for this song, for the solo that he brings in. But um, and I didn't know this till I was researching for the podcast, but he's also playing the solo. I don't think he plays throughout the whole song, but he does play the solo and fight for your right. Bring in that hard rock, that true rock guitar, bang your head element to both of these songs back to back on this album. You know, the interesting thing I found about it is that Kerry King didn't really like this song. He didn't really like the Beastie Boys (laughs) and the Beastie Boys didn't really like him. They didn't really get each other. It's kind of like a lemon to a lime or a lime to a lemon. (laughs) (laughs) I got to say the the guitar solo on this one is um, not good. Bad. It's terrible. It's, it it might be good in a different song, but it's like, it's, I mean, you can't take the guitar solo from, you know, beat it and throw it into the chords from walk this way or something. It just doesn't work. He intentionally played out of tune. Yeah, it just sounds, it sounds wrong, but that's what they were going for. I mean, I literally, when I first heard this, I thought, okay, these are just the Beastie Boys just trying to finger tap on whatever they can do on the fretboard just to sound as weird and crazy as they possibly can. This is a parody of hair metal. Once again, we have a fantastic music video. It starts out, it's really funny. They knock on the door, the producer answers the door. They're like, hey guys, where's the band? And they're like, where the band? He's like, where are your instruments? And they pull out a record. Yeah, <laughs> he, he grabs the record and he smashes it over their head and he's like get out of here you guys you're not the band and as soon as he shuts the door they knock on it again he opens it up and they're they're got the big wigs on and they're like dude we're like the band man he's like i've been waiting for you boys let's go and so they're parodying oh, hair metal once again and it ends with the hot girl going away with the gorilla right yes i think the gorilla was rick rubin right <laughs> 
the lead dancer in this video. Her name is Ruth Collins. Does that ring a bell with you guys? I'm going to say no on this. Have you ever watched Cinemax After Dark? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have. You know you have. Not in the last 20 years. Not yes, 20 you years. have. Okay. <laughs> She's been in Cemetery High, uh, Witch Academy, what? and Galactic Gigolo. <laughs> <laughs> she is known more for her body than for anything else. So... If you're, well, watching, you're to, telling me she did not show her acting chops in the, the Gigolo from Space or whatever, she you showed say. more than her acting chops. <laughs> you know, I might recognize her if you showed me the back of her head. <laughs> Google search. <laughs> Google search. <laughs> All right. Well, this is a legit song, though. I mean, Jay Z performed this song on his All Points West Festival in 2009. Oh, yeah. I, I love the sequencing of this album because you start out. With some hard-hitting rock, you kind of slow it down a little bit and get away from the guitar. And then right when it sucks you in, boom, it hits you with Fight for Your Right and No Sleep Till Brooklyn back-to-back. -back. Yep. And then they change gears again going into the next song. Yep. This was the sixth single released March 1st of 1987. Yep. Cool. Love this one. Love this song. Love these two songs rocking out. All right. The next song, song number two on side two, Paul Revere. History with that rap and me. My had a little horsey named Paul Revere. Just me and my horsey and a So the next song that we've got coming up has an example of a backwards drum beat, which I'm not sure that I have heard anybody before these guys did it do this style of drum beat in their song as the underlying drum beat for the entire song. I love it. I love it. And so this one, this the story on this one, how it was inspired is great. So it starts with them. They're waiting outside a recording studio for Run DMC when all of the sudden they see Joe Run Simmons running. He run is running towards them. He <laughs> runs down the street. He's screaming incoherently. He gets to the Beastie Boys and he says, here's a little story I got to tell. And after that, he's, they're confused, and he says, that's the song. And from that point on, he worked up the rest of the lyrics. <laughs> and it mythologizes the origin of the Beastie Boys and how they met. And it sets it in kind of an Old West setting, at least that's the imagery I get. And it's the 808 drum machine pattern that they recorded and then strung up backwards on a tape machine and played it backwards. It was MCA's idea and a unique sound, you know, right away what song you're listening to as soon as this thing starts. And again, they're throwing in those kind of educated references. Paul Revere's the name of the horse from Guys and Dolls. This was the second single released August 13th of 86. This is still three months before the release of the album. Yep. I got a quick funny story about this one. Okay. So I was talking to my buddy, Doug Gray. Yeah. Shout out to my buddy, Doug Gray. Hey, Doug. He's like, hey, man, what are, you, what are you guys working on this week? And I said, we're doing Licensed Ale by the Beastie Boys. And as soon as I got those words out of my mouth, he came back with, here's a little story I'd like to tell, and just rolled out the words, man. And Doug is not exactly the guy that I would think oh my knew gosh. all the words to Paul Revere. No, to see that Doug is 
straight lace, hyper intelligence, you know, just a very cool cat kind of guy. And he says some funny, dry stuff from time to time. I love being around him, but to see him roll out some beastie boys on Paul Revere, I would have just, it was, I would have just been dumbstruck. It was unleashing of the lyrics right there. They were all coming. <laughs> I know this whole song. I could sit here and do it from start to finish. Uh, it, <laughs> it, 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 honestly, it's it's one of my favorite. It's a great one, man. So let me tell you this. So the License to Ill tour continues in 1987, and it continues to create controversy wherever they go. They are in England in May, and they've already got politicians there wanting to ban them from the country because they think they're so offensive, <laughs> which is exactly the publicity they want. While they were in England on their tour, they played a show in Liverpool, and while there, they got out on stage, and immediately the crowd turns hostile and starts throwing beer bottles at them and stuff like that. So for their own safety, they have to abandon. Just like 10 minutes into the show, they run off the stage. They have to come up with a way to continue the show, but they've got to fend off all these bottles that are being thrown at them. Yeah. So they decide to do it with a wiffle ball bat. <laughs> and they just happen to have a wiffle ball bat on tour with them backstage i like these guys while the music's playing they are taking swings at the bottles being thrown at them trying to protect themselves and knocking it back into the crowd love it so this did create a problem though there was one girl that took an injury around her eye and she claimed that adam horovitz had been the one to hit her but anyway he ended up arrested after the show and spent the night in jail hey he might have spent the night in jail but at least he can hit yeah <laughs> <laughs> love this one yeah i'm tempted just to wrap the whole thing but it's very catchy and it's it's like a one two three punch in the middle of this album coming after five year right there's like to brooklyn right into paul revere i mean my goodness the album does not stop so Paul Revere samples from It's Yours, the very first song that Rick Rubin produced. He did it for yeah. Tila Rock. Yeah. You'll hear that familiar sound from Paul Revere. You hear it at the very beginning of It's Yours if you listen to that. Awesome. All right. Are we done with Paul Revere? Well, never, but go ahead. <laughs> now we're moving on to the first single release of the album. This song is called Hold It Now, Hit It. Hold it now. Hold it now. It's time to get ill. <laughs> so, talking samples. This one contains a bunch. We've got Birth of Butt Boogie by the Jimmy Caster Bunch. We've got Drop the Bomb and Let's Get Small by Trouble Funk. we got Funky Stuff by Cool in the Gang. we got Take Me to the Mardi Gras by Bob James. Christmas Rappin' by Curtis Blow. And La Di Da by Dougie Fresh and McRicky D. The line, Pump It Up Homeboy, gets sampled later on by Eric B. and Rakeem on their song, As the Rhyme Goes On, and by Ice-T on his song, You Don't Quit. And then the line, Beer Drinking, Breath Stinking, Sniffing Glue, was sampled by Dr. Dre, no, the one you're expecting this time, not the fat one, on Easy es <laughs> Boys in the Hood. Yes, so this was one of the very first songs recorded for the album. It came out as a single, I think, in April. Yes. Early. Yeah. So this was ahead of most of the sessions for the album. And it was one that Run in particular, Run DMC, but particularly Run, absolutely loved. And Russell loved it. This song got them excited and really, I think, encouraged them to push the BC Boys. It probably got them on the Raising Hell tour and all of that. Now, 
because of all those samples, as you're reading that off, I'm thinking to myself, this is probably one of the more heavily produced cuts. And it probably took the, a lot of the most work from Rick Rubin to be able to piece all this together. And so I'm kind of putting this timeline in my head and I'm going to guess that this song is the result of Rubin coming off the Madonna tour early because by coming off the road, he was able to first songs to come out ahead of the regular sessions and for it to be so heavily produced. I'm thinking he was spending a lot of time really nailing this down and getting the sound right. And I, I love it. I love the energy of it. I love the scratching on the whistle sound and the lyrics are hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It's really fun. All right. Love it. A lot of fun. High energy. I'm with you on everything. Are we done talking about hold it now, hit it? Sure. Let's go. All right. I'm dying to talk about the next song. The next song on the album is called Brass Monkey. This song was released as the fifth single, January 5th, 1987. It is so catchy. I love this one. Here are the ingredients for a normal brass monkey. You're going to have one part dark rum, one part vodka, and one part orange juice, which sounds delightful. But <laughs> what was happening back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s is there was a company called the Hubling Company that produced pre-mixed beer and other mixed drinks. And they had basically the brass monkey in a can, and that was the drink of choice for the Beastie Boys. And that is where the song came from. That sounds like a poor man's mimosa. <laughs> there, there was also a homemade uh, recipe for brass monkey that was basically malt liquor and orange juice. And I cannot imagine how awful <laughs> that must be. <laughs> okay, so the term brass monkey comes from the phrase, it's cold enough to freeze the balls off a brass monkey. <laughs> Are you guys familiar with this term? This is a nautical term. Back when ships had to carry cannonballs, they had to stack them in pyramids, right? Okay. But to keep them from rolling around on the deck, you had a piece of iron that had concave-like spots for all the, the foundation balls to sit in, and that was called a brass monkey. And if it got really cold, those things would shrink and the balls wouldn't fit right. And that is where the term brass monkey of which the drink was based on. Okay. You're learning something. I am learning something. Okay, so so for real, if we're going to if we're going to do this, let's go even a little bit further. I mean, if Def Dave can go back to 1890, I can go back <laughs> to, to World War II. World War II, a guy named Steve Donger, Donger. Steve Donger, <laughs> the Donger. <laughs> Steve, the donger need food. What are you bitching about? I got to sleep under a guy named after a duck door. <laughs> <laughs> he was an advertising executive. He named the drink after a World War II spy named H.E. Rasky. Alan Kaufman, who crafted the series of stories about this spy, created the ad campaign using an old photo of his father as Rasky's image. So he was named after a purported World War II spy, although probably fictional. Double O Brass Monkey. <laughs> Very good. 
Yeah, so we're coming off, hold it now, hit it, and then that, whatever that is, we're hearing it, the first sound of this song, the that honking kind of uh, scratching. I don't know, is that, is, that, is that a sampled horn they're scratching in? I don't know. But as soon as you hear it, boom, you're you're dancing again. It's, it's immediately just completely rejuvenates you, even though you're just coming off of a, of a high energy song, you're just right back into it. When I was at the concert in 1987, I everybody was bringing in Brass Monkey. Everybody was sneaking in Brass Monkey. You see it everywhere. Uh-huh. And it was like the crowd, they loved Fight for Your Right at the end of the show, but that crowd was there ready to to get down with Brass Monkey. And when this song started, and when those opening notes sounded, there was a surge toward the stage. It scared me. We got caught up in it and everybody went nuts. Like the, the crowd went to a whole nother level right as this song started. And we all got pressed forward kind of unwillingly. I think I was lifted off my feet just by the press of bodies. There were at least two girls I can remember that I was friends with that fainted. They fainted and would have fallen out, except they couldn't fall. There was no room to fall. And they had, and we kind of like fireman carry kind of passed them along and got them outside of the crowd so they get some fresh air. Okay, I got I got a song I got to play for you. Okay, this song is called "Bring It Here" by Wild Sugar. Are you familiar with this? No. Check it out. They took it right from it, didn't they? They stole that right from them. That is, yeah, unmistakably them, for sure. Good find. Thank you. What year is that from? 1980. 1980. There you go. Okay. I've got a great personal story I want to share about Brass Monkey, okay? Okay. I'm going to poke a little fun at our friends in Texas for just a second, okay? (laughs) All right. So... The University of Texas has a special teams coach who left his family to be with a stripper. Okay. <laughs> Stay with me now. All right. I, I'm just going to poke fun at them for just a second. Okay. Now the stripper's name, get this, is Pull Assassin. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, can just, I can just imagine Paul Assassin talking to her friends like, I got myself a college coach. And they're like, oh, yeah, who? And she's like, well, he's a special teams coach. <laughs> <laughs> so Miss Paul Assassin has a stress animal that's a monkey. Oh, no. I'm not making this up. You guys can look at this. I'm not making this up. So on Halloween, Miss Assassin and her good friend, Mr. Special Teams Coach, <laughs> Have children come over for trick or treating. So the monkey bites a child. Okay. <laughs> so that weekend, Iowa State plays Texas in Ames. Okay. And what song do they play 50 billion times? <laughs> John Reed, that one's for you, buddy. <laughs> oh, All right, it is college football. Welcome horn. <laughs> okay, so we've done. Well, just a quick note on Brass Monkey. It was the only other single released from this album that cracked the top 50 of Billboard 100. Okay. Uh, it peaked at number 48. 48. Okay, cool. Moving on? Moving on. Okay, moving on to the second last song on this album. This song is called Slow and Low. Let's just go slow and low. That is the tempo. 
<laughs> this is the one that they sampled from Flick the Switch for ACDC, right? Right. So this song was written by Run DMC, and it was intended for the King of Rock album, which came out in 85. Run DMC recorded a demo of it, but they decided not to include it on their album, so they, they never did a finished track. But you can hear their demo. You can hear the Run DMC version of Slow and Low on the expanded edition of the King of Rock album that they put out a couple years ago. Oh, it's cool. Available. Nice. It's available on Spotify. You can find it. Let's play it right here. Let it flow. Let yourself go. Slow and low. That is the tempo. Wow, there you go. Different, but still awesome. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I think that they gave it to the Beastie Boys, who, of course, had to rewrite just a couple of lines. They, they, the Beastie Boys put their own name in it, and then they added the rhyme about uh, White Castle Fries only come in one side. White Castle Fries only come in one side. What you see is what you get, and you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> everything White Castle else, again. <laughs> everything else came from Run DMC's version of the song. So I think it was the right move. I think it's better with the BC Boys. It's better with three voices doing it, I think. And the finished production from Ruben. I mean, this is a song where the bass drops hard. Great dynamics to what you've had because I mean you've you've got amazing song after amazing song after amazing song that are all rocking in your face and yes this one's still rocked but you're right it's that kind of more subdued rock and at this point you've absolutely bought in and you can take this little break from the hard and go in with this more funky style. Yeah, I think one of the strengths of this album is the sequencing to come off of Hold It Now, Hit It, and Brass Monkey to this. Uh, is, is a good move. This was the oldest song on this album. They recorded this in 85. So this predates Hold It Now, Hit It. It was the it was the first one they ever did. There's something about this being released as a single. I'm not sure what was different about this release. It's not always listed as a single in their discography, but it did some, get some kind of exposure in 85 prior to the album coming out, but that's all I got on it. Before we jump to the very last song, there is a song that was supposed to be on the album where they had done some sort of version of I'm Down by the Beatles. Right. But this is interesting. It couldn't make it onto the album because Michael Jackson, who had bought the rights to all of the Beatles music, said no and pissed off paul mccartney majorly they used to be friends until michael jackson bought up all the the back yeah. publishing for all the beatles songs and then told the beastie boys no okay so that moves us to the last song on the album what's the time it's time to get ill what's the time it's time to get ill time to get ill what's the time it's time to get ill what's the time it's time to get ill so what's the time it's time to get ill Close it out with a bang with this one. For me, the star of this track is the production. I love all the samples. The sampling and the scratching, they just make this track. Of course, the interchange in the voices and the contrast in the voices carries this also, just like it has through the whole album. You're getting Green Acres and Mr. Ed and Creedence Clearwater <laughs> Revival all at the same time.
Fantastic album with two songs that have horses in them. <laughs> um, yeah, the, di- the dynamics that they use on this one, and the crazy sampling for sure, but they have more dynamics and more variation in this last song than they've had on any other song in the album, and it totally knocks it out of the park. Listen to the songs that they sample on this song. Okay? Yeah. I'm Gonna Love You Just a Little More Baby by Barry White. I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett. That, that scream, that ow, that's Joan Jett. Down on the Corner by CCR, Green Acres, the Green Acres television theme song. They must have been watching Nick at Night when they came up with it. <laughs> then they also did the Mr. Ed TV theme, Gucci Time by Schoolie D, The Party Scene by Russell Brothers, Rocket in the Pocket by Sharon. Yes. Custard Pie by Led Zeppelin, and Nothing from Nothing by Billy Preston. That's a lot of samples. That's a lot of samples. And I'm really glad that they finished off the album with another Led Zeppelin song because... You got you to dance the lady that brought you, man. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> By the way, I visited Mr. Ed's gravesite in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Wow. There is a gravestone, says Mr. Ed. You got anything for us on this one, Dave? I don't have anything particular for the song, but it's just a lot of fun. This album's over before you know it. There's literally not a song to skip. And it's just good. It's just good. It's fun. It's exciting. Every track hits. And and it, and you just have a good time with it. you. Got a smile on your face the whole time. I agree. That's it's well said. Good. You know, it's just good. Great album, front to back. And so next week we're going to be coming back with the other side of the coin on this one, right? I mean, the two groups that basically brought this music and this genre to its peak in the mid '80s. We're going to come back with Run DMC. Raising Hell. Excited. Yeah. I'm excited. And we're going to come back with Def Dave again. David Wright is going to be with us again to talk the history of Run DMC and probably rap for that matter. And then we're going to jump in track by track and, and we're going to race him out. And then we're all going to give our final judgment, right? Well, I'm going to I'm going to do the wave and maybe the dolphin and probably the backspin <laughs> or two. And then I'll give my final <laughs> Dave, thank you very much. We will see you next week for part two. Dear listener, if you are have been with us this long, please hit the follow button. Please hit the subscribe button. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Shirley Podcast. Check us out on Patreon if you want to be a, 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 a member who is a subscribed uh, contributor to our podcast. You will become an executive producer and you can do that for as little as five bucks a month. But by all means, engage us. Tell us what your favorite track is on this album on Raisin Hell and let us know what you think of these two amazing bands and albums. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dave.